Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, Episode 376. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy to have you here today. I am also thrilled to introduce our guest, Rennie Gabriel. Rennie is the president of Financial Coach, and after two divorces and a business failure, he was flat broke and age 50 and started all over from scratch. Now, Rennie, I am thrilled to have you here for so many reasons, but I was not 50, but I found myself divorced or going through a divorce, having a failed business, being unemployed and flat broke at 31. So I'm so intrigued by what you went through to get to where you are now, which I haven't even shared with listeners yet. But oh, I forgot to say welcome. Welcome. (laughs) I'm just so excited. I mean, positive productivity. It's not about perfection. And sometimes I forget what I'm doing between the introduction, the welcome, obviously. But welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Kim. It's my pleasure to be with you. Oh, you are so welcome. I would love if you would share more about your journey with the listeners and tell them just where you are today. Because yeah, I left that off, but let's create some intrigue and suspense here, right? Yeah, it's. I'm very blessed based on where I am right now. And it's uh, really quite remarkable. From the standpoint of net worth in terms of the assets that we have starting from broke, We are in the top 1% of American families based on net worth. Top 1%. Yeah. So, you know, and the thing is, you know, when people protest and say the one percenters and evil and all that stuff, that's about Hollywood conditioning to say that rich people are evil or greedy or selfish and poor people are all uh, the only good ones. I mean, you look at movies like Titanic or Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. If you track how Hollywood has indoctrinated people, the good people are poor and have nothing, and the rich people are just evil, mean, and greedy. And if it wasn't for wealthy people, whether it's Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, the level of money in foundations to cure the problems in the world wouldn't exist. I mean, Bill Gates funds health. Uh, initiatives all over the world, educational initiatives, inner city kids who have full scholarships to colleges. That comes, I mean, people can't pour from an empty cup and it takes money to solve some of the issues we have in the world. And you know what, let me give you a quote. I'm sorry I'm rambling on, but this really kind of gets me. I speak typo and ramble. It's totally okay. Thank you. One of my favorite quotes uh, is from Warren Buffett. And while this isn't going to be perfect, it'll be pretty close. He says, more money brings out the basic traits in people. And I've met people who were jerks. And when they became billionaires, they were just jerks with a lot of money. Mm. And the other part of that would be that If you're a good person and you're a grateful person and you're a kind person and you make a lot of money, you'll still be a grateful, kind and nice person. Right. And so I often speak with people who say, you know, I don't want to have a lot of money. 
you know, I don't want to be rich and things like that because, you know, that'll corrupt me. No, if you're corruptible, any amount of money will do it. Right. Well, just getting around the wrong people could corrupt you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that, you know, that's more likely when you're young. By the time you're in your 20s and 30s, you've, your value system is pretty well set. If your values are in alignment with what benefits everybody, then if you're around the wrong people, you're not going to hang around them because, you know, another quote from Jim Rowan, your income will be the average of the five people you hang around with most. Mm -hmm. And so if you're hanging around with, if you're not centered inside, well, it's easy to be swayed by the people you hang around with. If you are centered inside, then you won't be hanging around people who aren't a match for you. Oh, my gosh. Rennie, I don't know how much of my story you know. And listeners, I don't know if this is your first episode or your 300th and something. 376 to be exact. Oh, wow, I can't believe that. Yeah. In 2016, July of 2016, I hit my lowest point ever, I would have to say. And it was because I was chasing income rather than working on making an impact. And my mentors at that time were all income chasers themselves. And I found myself in this really dark spot because I was not sleeping. I was constantly chasing the dollar. I was failing miserably because nobody was hearing me. And I don't mean they weren't seeing what I was selling, but my voice was absent in all of it. There was no part of my heart and my passion in what I was doing. And it just, for lack of a better word, it sucked altogether. And after I climbed out of that deep, dark hole, I realized that my mentors were just wrong. And I unfollowed all of them. I found a whole new group of mentors who just completely inspire me, to this day completely inspire me, light me up. I pursue impact rather than income. And amazingly, the income has grown substantially since then. But I've found that the people that I am associating with and following are just good people. And they would be, they will, I, I can't say they would be good people, even if they were broke. They were broke, many of them, mm -hmm. before they got to where they are today. And I think what a lot of people don't even realize, I mean, I've never met Tony Robbins in person, but a lot of people don't realize where exactly he came from. He didn't come from a ton of money. Let me rephrase. I don't know how much money he actually came from, but I know that he's lost it all. And I also know that he came from a very rough childhood. So don't let your current position determine where you go. Absolutely right. And uh, one of my uh, friends, acquaintances, I'm not sure, talks about, you know, there's a difference between having success or having significance. And significance is far more important than success. Ooh, how would you distinguish the two? Here's how it looks for me. You know, I'm not going to talk about, it's easier to talk about me than other people. And that is that uh, based on what I've been blessed to have accomplished, I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but on that basis, 100% of the profits from the work that I do now online, whether it's selling my book or doing coaching or an online program, I donate 100% of the profits to a charity that rescues dogs from high-kill environments 
and then trains them as service animals for soldiers who've come back uh, injured, whether it's uh, post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injuries. And our veterans who allow us to do what we do in this country are sacrificing their lives so that we have these freedoms and, and they're not really taken care of when they come back. And they're committing suicide at the rate of almost one an hour. And dogs are euthanized by the thousands that have a purpose in life. So this charity is pairing trained service dogs from environments where they would have been killed with service members who are having difficulty functioning. And as far as I know, not one service person, not one veteran has committed suicide who's had their service dog. This charity saves two lives at a time. So that's absolutely amazing. So that, I guess that's what I mean by significance. I mean, that my money is going somewhere where it's, it's making an impact in a way that I think benefits animals that I love and uh, human beings that, that deserve more attention than our government provides. Wow. Randy, my, my husband is a U.S. Air Force veteran who sustained a severe back injury in the service, and he's got a ruptured disc and a herniated disc. Mm. And the medical people, for lack of a better expression right now, pardon me, listeners, brain fart disconnected my brain and my mouth. I just didn't know the right word. Prescribed him with all types of drugs, including Oxycontin, which Mm -hmm. made him suicidal. Uh And I mean, he literally had a sword up to his belly and he was ready to kill himself, but he didn't. So thank you so much for what you are doing. You're welcome. Listeners, he is not on those drugs. No, he is not suicidal. Our kids make us crazy, but not that much. So where did you come from? Where were you? And what were you going through prior to going broke at age 50? And what have you done since that created the turnaround? One of the things that was very frustrating to me, and maybe a lot of your listeners can relate to this, but how to handle money effectively or even, you know, do a budget, write a check, balance a checking account, whatever. I mean, the basic skills of handling money are not taught in school. They're not taught in high school. They're not taught in college. It gets worse. I mean, when you think, you know, parents can't teach what they don't know. So I'm not blaming parents. Every accountant I've spoken with, I'm talking about certified public accountants. I asked this question. I say, do you remember in your coursework where you were taught how to budget, whether it's a personal budget or a business budget, and how to teach your clients how to do that? Not one of them have said that's a part of their coursework. Now, I was a certified financial planner. It wasn't in my coursework. It's not taught. And and this was very frustrating to me because I didn't know how to handle money effectively. I owned a pension administration company helping our clients save thousands of dollars in taxes, guiding them on investments to make money. But I didn't know how to do a budget. I didn't know how to live on my own income. I mean, these are the basics. And that, so that was frustrating. I had gotten a couple, I had two divorces. I mean, that wiped out whatever I was able to build. I had an art gallery business and that failed. I'd inherited $17,000 from my mom and that got all that was lost in the uh, art gallery business. And it, my low point was collecting soda pop bottles and cans 
to get the refund money so I could buy food for my family. So if you want to know how far down I was, that's where it was. Rennie, I was raised by two accountants. They were divorced, but both Uh my parents were accountants. One was wealthier than the other and didn't talk about money, period. Uh The other one was struggling constantly. And as soon as money came in, it went back out either for bills or, oh, I want this. Let's get it. Right. So no financial planning on either side. I never got taught. Just like you were saying, I never got taught, which and and they actually, I think they secretly wanted me to go into accounting, but I couldn't stand (laughs) to look at numbers. But I never learned to balance my checkbook. If there was black, then I figured I had money to spend. Yeah, the joke is, how could I be out of money? There's still checks in the in the checkbook. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's just an illustration of, okay, both parents are accountants, and they didn't pass on accounting information or budgeting information to you, and it sounds like one of them didn't have it for themselves anyway, and this is typical. It's 90% of the population has received no instructions, and even people who've been trained doesn't mean they don't. That doesn't mean they can pass it on. I read as much as I could. I tried to find books uh, that would educate me. And I ended up pulling together little bits from so many different places. And that's how I came up with my book, Wealth on Any Income. I needed to recognize that there are emotional blocks to creating money. Like you don't want to be like one parent or the other parent. And that needs to be a conscious thing as opposed to being run by it unconsciously. And so the first third of my book is all about the stuff that's in the way of us creating wealth. And it has to do with messages we may have gotten from our parents or siblings or school teachers or Hollywood movies or whatever. And then once that's rearranged, then I can talk about the tips and techniques to handling money effectively. But it's sort of like, let me ask you this. Do you know of someone who's obese? Oh, yeah. Okay. Would you guess that they know, I'm talking about the intellectual informational knowledge of what it takes to lose weight? The two that I'm thinking about right now do now, but there are definitely others who don't. Yes. Um, Well, what would you say are the two keys to losing weight movement and diet uh-huh yeah okay so you know it and are you telling me you think other obese people don't know that oh absolutely or they don't exercise it that's right they know it and knowing it is irrelevant mm-hmm. that's the point i want to make just because you know if you change your diet or you exercise you'll lose weight doesn't mean someone can put it into practice and it's the same thing about money even if someone does know what it takes to save or invest or budget or or get out of debt doesn't mean they've gotten through the emotional issues that are stopping them from putting it into practice and that's what has to be dealt with first before any techniques or tips are brought into the picture so I recognize that for myself. I recognize that for the vast majority of people that are stressing over their money or are struggling with, you know, trying to make financial decisions. And so that's how I designed the book. Let's deal with the emotional stuff first. 
and then we'll get into what are the practical step-by-step things that need to be done. One of my favorite book series in my 20s was the Shopaholic series. The main subject in this book series was this uh, also a 20-something who was struggling with debt because every time she got a new credit card, she would go shopping. I mean, Shopaholic uh-huh. series. And yeah. then she would max out that credit card and she would need to go get another. And I, I see, I've seen it personally, that vicious cycle of buying things to make ourselves feel better. Yes. But then we get, then we see that credit card bill come in and we get depressed. I mean, I've uh-huh. been there, but then we go and we buy something to make ourselves feel better. And it's a vicious cycle. And this yeah. is not completely related. I mean, I. No, I, it's I, it related. It's well, very important because what you're addressing is a basic issue that things on the outside of you are going to cure the things that are wrong on the inside and that it won't work that way. It'll never work that way. Absolutely. I've been divorced once myself. I found myself in that cycle when I was married the first time and very unhappy. Finances were for the most part better, but it was just a different time and different place. I mean, there was more money on his side. (laughs) I'll I'll just throw that in there. I had a struggling business, but I was putting myself into the ground, charging up my credit cards to keep the business going. And then it failed right when the marriage failed. However, in my marriage now, I mean, we're completely in love. We communicate awesomely. The one struggle that we have though, and if it's the one struggle, I mean, yes, it can create more struggles, but I'll give my husband a grocery list. No joke. It has four items on it. It should cost $40. Listeners, you might be wondering why it would cost $40 with four items. That's because there's still diapers on there, which, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. If you're looking to budget and you don't have kids yet, just wait a moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he he called me the other day from the store. He had forgotten his wallet at home. He does that all the time. and Or he forgot the one card he needed. And I was like, well, how much did it cost you? Or how much is it? Because I was just going to tell him to use a different card. And it was one of those four-item grocery trips that should have cost $40. He's like, um, $110. Like, $110? I sent you with four items. But that's another thing. I mean, we, we set ourselves up sometimes by not having that list or as entrepreneurs having shiny object syndrome. Ooh, this just hit my email. I need to buy this. And it's mm-hmm. only 2,500. I've had clients who have racked up 200, 300, $400,000 in all these trainings that they never even set into motion. It's like you were talking about obese people, you know, diet and movement, but they're not exercising constraint or self constraint. Um, self-control. I know what I'm trying to say. It's the same for entrepreneurs. We don't need to buy everything. Yes. And here's one of the solutions that I found. uh, And it's kind of like a two-step process. The first is you have to identify your values, who you are as a human being, what's important to you. And it doesn't matter what personality test you take or what exercise from my book. But the point is you need to be grounded in what your values are. And then from there, you determine what's important to you in terms of your goals. What is it you're looking to accomplish? 
And it could be anything from I want to impress other people to I want to be secure in our finances. But if you haven't established the values first and long term goals, then you're attracted to all the shiny objects and the short term stuff. I mean, if someone goes into a store and they say, oh, look at this. The sweaters are on sale. There's a red sweater and a blue sweater and a green sweater. Should I get the red, the blue, the green? Well, wait a second. Maybe you don't need any sweater at all. Instead of choosing between three different sweaters, choose between, is this going to support you in getting you to where you said your long-term goals would take you? But if you're not disconnected, if you don't have the long-term goals, then anything in the short term as a shiny object, you know, distracts you and and that's what you get stuck with. Mm. Choose to walk away. Choose to walk towards your goal. Yeah, exactly. But if you don't have it and Mm -hmm. if it's not grounded in your values, then you don't have this guiding light. Right. So what created the turnaround for you? You said you started piecing together various pieces of learning. It was a little bit of, well, it's one of the important things, and you've kind of brought this up, is the relationship. I am married for the third and last time with someone who has common values to mine. And on that basis, I've got a partner in the relationship and what we're, and we, on our goals are aligned. So we're able to support one another. So I had the the, the knowledge and the information, and I was beginning to execute it by myself. But one of the things that I say often, and I tell people repeatedly, is that wealth is a team sport, not a solo sport. And there is no one who's created wealth of any consequence who's done it by themselves. And if you look at Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg, it doesn't matter who you're looking at or or Andrew Carnegie, they didn't build wealth by themselves. Do you know who Charlie Munger is? I've heard the name, but I'm not familiar. Okay. Do you know who Warren Buffett is? Yes. Okay. Well, Charlie Munger happens to be a partner of Warren Buffett in Berkshire Hathaway. Hmm. So Warren is the face of the company. He's what you would call the visionary. And Charlie Munger is the execution master. He makes sure everything gets done. I mean, it, 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 you know, and there's far more people in Berkshire Hathaway than the two of them. But there is no way to create wealth. You know, people who say they're self-made millionaires, it's a bunch of baloney. It, it's just not true. They've got to have people who support their vision and help them execute what's going on. And so... In my marriage, that's what it started at. I was doing business coaching. I was saving uh, like $500 a month, 10% of what I was making. And after three years, I'd accumulated for the first time in my life some savings. It was like $18,000. And my wife had a real estate partner who said, hey, there's this little triplex. I'd like us to buy it, which was great because... That $18,000 would not buy anything by myself, but my wife contributed $18,000. The other person contributed $36,000, and we bought it. Well, six years later, our down payment, which was a total of like $76,000, turned into a $520,000 profit. Wow. 
my little 18,000 turned into about $130,000 profit. During the six years, I borrowed more money to make down payments on more apartment buildings with them. Again, it's a team sport, not a solo sport. And after about eight years, we had 50 rental units that we owned. You know, and while it was a struggle in the beginning, if a plumbing bill came in, okay, we didn't have profit that month. But the reality is we, we stayed with it, you know, and now it's worth millions of dollars. Wow. Wow. I mean, so that, that's where I am now. But I mean, again, it, the way I got there was not by myself. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people who judge, mm, I'm trying to think of how to say this tactfully. Maybe I just don't worry about it tactfully. Yeah, don't worry about it. Just spit it out. <laughs> so, okay. I'm going to use myself as an example here. I joke sometimes with my husband that, you know, we could never drive through LA or Beverly Hills just based on the car that I drive. I drive a 1996 GMC conversion fan. Okay, mm -hmm. Rennie. I mean, cool. we would be laughed right out of some areas, but at the same time, I don't worry about the people who would laugh mm -hmm. because that's good because that's the way it needs to be. Go ahead. In your opinion, are the people who would laugh at the vehicle that I'm driving because it's a 1996 GMC conversion van, are they actually happy? And do you think that they have actually accumulated wealth that they can be secure about if they are with what I believe to be that much? To me, people who can laugh like that scornfully are bullies and are lacking self-confidence themselves. I, and I would agree with you. And so I, I think there's two points here. One of them is the people who would laugh at you uh, are people you don't need to care about whatsoever. And the people who might laugh at you are also people who are probably insecure in their own situation. And, okay, my car is a 2006 Toyota RAV4. I love it. I mean, it, it does everything I want it to do. A 2006 so. Toyota RAV4, and you are in yeah. the top 1% income level or wealth in the U.S. Thank yeah, you right. very much. I so appreciate you sharing that here. Yeah. And by the way, my motorcycle, I was thinking about it the other day because I had to have the alternator replaced. That's what I use most of the time. Is 24 years old. Mm. It's a 1994. So I think you said you have it in 1996? Yep. Okay, so my motorcycle is two years older than your your vehicle. Yeah. And we were chatting just before we got on. You know, I have a, I have a son who will be 16 in yeah. about six months. Well, I would love aesthetically and functionally. I don't even have an auxiliary port. Okay, that's my biggest gripe, my only gripe about my car right now. I don't have an auxiliary port to plug my phone in and listen, you know, to podcasts or music on my iPhone while I'm driving. I just have to listen to it out of the actual iPhone. And that's my only gripe. If something uh -huh. breaks, it will get fixed. But in the meantime, we bought the car for $1,300. Uh -huh. If we went to replace it right now, that would be forty, fifty thousand, 50,000, something they could see all of our family all together. Mm -hmm. And that's just not, I mean, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in my part of Ohio, that's half of a house. 
<laughs> yeah, yep, I understand completely. And I guess that's, that gets back to the long-term goals and your values. Mm-hmm. I helped a friend buy a car that he wanted because he wasn't going to get the financing because he already owned a Lamborghini. And he wanted to buy this quarter-million-dollar Porsche. He's been a friend since high school, so I signed for it. He's making the payments, but it took my credit so that he could buy it. I'm never going to have a car like that. I can't imagine wasting a quarter million dollars on a car. Well, you drive it off the lot and it it loses how much value? Right? Well, this probably won't because, it, you know, there's so few of them. But the point is, I mean, I... It just doesn't fit my value system. Mm-hmm. We joke in the house. Uh, my wife had a Lexus, and she leases them. And the lease was coming up for renewal, and so she doesn't like the new ones. She doesn't like the body style, and so she leased a um, an Acura. And the first day she drove it, she came home crying. It's not doesn't ride as nice as her Lexus. It's too sporty. It's this, it's that. And she's crying. And I said, tell you what, let me, I'll take over the payments. Don't worry about it. We hadn't gotten rid of the Lexus. You could still have your Lexus. We'll just buy it. So money can do things like that. My wife wants to have a decent car for her work and that's fine. And we can afford to do that, but we don't have to. Right. Right. And you said she's in real estate, right? Say that again? Your wife is in real estate? Yes, correct. Yeah, so, I mean, and then you can't drive a client around in a 1996 GMC conversion van. <laughs> no, no. Right. Exactly. You just can't. No. Yeah. It, it just sort of like, uh, I, I think I'll work with someone else. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I am not going to argue that at all. Yeah. So, you know, that's a piece of business equipment for her. Mm-hmm. And, and I can, and that makes sense. You know, what I'm laughing about is the idea that so by accident, we now have an extra car in the family, which she says she's so happy about having. And now when we go somewhere, my wife wants me to take the Acura instead of my RAV4. uh, And she says, I feel so good now that when we go places, we have a nice car. (laughs) Okay, fine. I don't care. Yeah, it makes her happy. My husband's dream car is a DeLorean. Um, Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, we, my wife and I just went to the Museum of Failure this past weekend. Uh And one of the, I mean, they had the Edsel and they had the Coke, new Coke that went, you know, and they had lasagna that had the label Colgate on it. I mean, just stuff like, why would anyone buy this? And there was a DeLorean there as well. Yeah. I didn't even know there was a museum of failure. That's awesome. It sounds like perfect content for positive productivity. Yeah. Yeah. Just so entertaining. My wife and I love going through there and seeing everything from sunglasses that uh, one of the major manufacturers put out where they were easy to take on and off as long as you glued magnets to your head. What? You glued magnets to your head? Yes. You glue magnets to your head, and that way you can take the glasses on and off easily. Okay. Or you could just slip them over your ears. 
why this is the museum of failures. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I do have to ask, and, and nothing about positive productivity is scripted. What would you say is your favorite life failure? Gosh, that's hard to say because every failure was a learning experience that allowed me to understand what worked and didn't didn't work for the next step I needed to take. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Oh, I get I think my favorite was the art gallery business. And the reason for that is I did it by myself. Mm. And be, you know, I I again Wealth is a team sport, not a solo sport. I was doing the art gallery business by myself, and that failed. And a pension company uh, that I established with a couple of partners was successful. We sold it off to a division of a public company. And that comparison of you do it by yourself doesn't work. You do it with some partners. You do it with some other people. The likelihood of success is dramatic. Right. I can totally see that. And I I think I would have to use that same for myself. My favorite was my business that failed. Because had I not racked up all the credit card bills on that one, I mean, this is just being totally transparent here, I would have more credit cards today. So I would have probably done more shiny object syndrome purchases (laughs) and gone into even more debt than I went into with the first business. But because I tanked my credit, I mean, it's finally recovering now, but I learned my lesson. Because I tanked my credit, I couldn't get a credit card for seven years. Mm-hmm. And so, I did something very similar when the art gallery business folded. I had credit card debt. I couldn't get any credit. And uh, I had to learn how to get by on cash. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so my book has these kinds of experiences in it that, that you know, created what works. How do you feel considering you, are you still a business coach or any? I'll do, I do group coaching. I've got a, an online program that teaches all of these basics. And then I have a 12 month group coaching program that follows people who've gone through the course. So, you know, it's like, you know, you can't show up to the gym once and you've solved things. Right. And so, I've tied that to a program that teaches the basics and then the the support is in a group format as opposed to one-on-one. So the reason I ask is considering the learning experiences that you have had in your own financial history, how do you feel about coaches who during the discovery process, you know, trying to figure out if their prospect is going to hire them or not and the prospect comes back with a financial um, objection, say, well, you can charge it on your credit card or go ask a family member or friend to help you pay for it. When it comes to coaches asking clients to, you know, charge it, find the money somewhere, borrow it from other people, I, I have some concerns about that. And this may be a pattern for someone. It could be a pattern for the coach to, to put people into debt, but it could also be a person problem for the for the potential client. And you know, there are people who spent 
tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they're not even putting these things into practice. And I recall many years ago when I started my practice, I didn't want anyone to work with me if they had to put it on a credit card because one of the important things was getting rid of credit card debt. And I've made a, a, um, a shift in that because mine is a financial program. So one of the things I will let people charge it or pay monthly because the focus is creating wealth and they're getting support from me to do that. But for other kinds of programs, it's just, I have an issue with it. It just, it doesn't feel right to me. That's about the best I can say. Thank you. I have had the experience in my own business where the coaches who asked for me to do that, I would later find out were struggling themselves. And I found it very ironic and sickly ironic that they sold me on a program that is now making them, quote, rich, and they're struggling, you know. But the ones who provided immediate, even before I hired them, provided immediate insight and actionable tips to help me come up with the money to pay for my coaching and they were sustainable tips, you know, something that if I just put it into action today would start generating income that would pay for further coaching with them, which you would think would lead to more ideas. Mm -hmm. Those were the ones who didn't ask for that initial income. And I was so impressed based upon just that initial insight and the value that I got from the start that those are the relationships that have continued. And that makes a lot of sense. One of the uh, people that I worked with did speak about, well, spoke about one thing, and that was she wanted to learn how to create wealth from someone who didn't have it, who now does have it. Not obviously someone who's either inherited it or isn't wealthy themselves, which makes a lot of sense. But more importantly, I don't make my money from these programs. That's not what it's about. The money from the programs that I teach, I donate to charity. My objective in doing this is to support other people to to create financial choice in their life. Well, you know, I mean, I have a, what I want to say, I have a hidden objective. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm saying it, it's not going to be that hidden. But my goal is for people to become wealthy themselves so they can be philanthropic, so they can give back, so they can make major contributions back to the world. So that's one of my hidden agendas is it's not for people who just want to make money like my friend to go out and buy another Lamborghini or quarter million dollar Porsche. I'm not interested in helping them. I'm interested in helping people who want to be philanthropic. Oh, I love that. Yeah. There needs to be more use. Well, that's that's a part of what I'm creating. Mm-hmm. For the listeners who want to learn your program and learn your strategies and what you are teaching, where do they go, Rennie? Oh, they can get a lot of free stuff. I mean, all sorts of business building tools, how to ask for referrals, uh, how to focus their marketing. They can get this stuff free from my website. It's called Wealth on any income. So, you know, I think it's appropriate title because I created massive wealth 
starting by saving $500 a month. So the website is Wealth on Any Income. Listeners, if you're driving or working out right now and you can't go there right now, there will be a link in the show notes, which you can find at thecamasutton.com forward slash PP376. Renny, this has been an absolute pleasure. I want to just thank you again for what you're doing. I love cause that you are supporting with the with the dogs and the veterans. Absolutely amazing. And if I can support you with your cause in any way, please don't hesitate to let me know. It's just thank you so much. Yeah, we, we can have a, a further conversation about that because you know where you've been, and you know it's aligned with what I'm doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm definitely interested. Do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? Yeah, it's something I've said a few times on the show already, and I'll repeat it because I think it's the most important and it's the foundational piece to creating any kind of business success or financial success, and that is wealth is a team sport, not a solo sport. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level.